listeners, and welcome to the latest Unions 21 podcast. I'm Simon Sapper. And I'm Becky Wright. And we are here at the University of Glasgow, who have very kindly supported the production of this podcast with Professor Mel Sims, Professor of Work and Employment. Mel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I think in a departure from our, our normal format, I mean, normally, listeners, as you know, we round up the news from trade union land, but actually, as one of the big stories at the moment is the muck strike mm-hmm. uh, by, uh, by 11 employees at McDonald's in the last couple of days. I thought... Yeah, that might be a good place to start, Becky. Would, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, this was something that I was reading yesterday and there's loads of stuff that come out of it that have set the my mind kind of racing. And I just thought, given Mel's background and, and, and kind of research history and for full disclosure, Mel did the evaluation for my very first organising project. So I have known Mel on and off for many, many years. I still feel like we're both really young and then I look at myself and go, no, that's not quite right. No, 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 you you both are compared to me, I can tell you. (laughs) Um, But this is, the, the, the McDonald's stuff has really sunk in my head after we launched the organising innovation paper with Mel and Jane and Andy who we'll hear later on in the series. Because as we were sort of discussing through, we were talking about how um, difficult it would be to get union recognition in a place like McDonald's. And, and actually, in the Guardian article itself, it was really interesting because it basically said something along the lines of only a quarter of McDonald's are actually McDonald's-owned. So there's a lot of kind of complications for any union who's going in to think about what the bargaining unit is and how we would organise and get kind of union recognition. And Jane said there that actually workers knew they probably weren't going to get union recognition. And so we're just kind of coming together to share a sense of what's going on and to kind of almost build that sense of solidarity. And it and it's a kind of a, a reimagining of what collective bargaining could be and how it could be. So... I kind of wanted to start off with saying, hi, Mel, <laughs> what's the future of collective no, no. <laughs> But well, like, I, I, is there I, anything that comes out of that that sort yeah. of strikes you? Because I'm actually, Mel, I mean, your, your, your research in, in previous years about organising and about mm. the migration of young workers into the mm. labour market, the engagement of employers with labour market policy, will have, will have explored the notions that actually, whether you're a worker or an employee, whether you work directly employed or in a franchise, a lot of the issues are going to be the same. A lot of workplace issues are the same, and I think they're the same whether you work for McDonald's or whether you work in a university, whether you work in a professional role, whether you work um, hourly paid, um, delivering food like Deliveroo drivers. Um, I think a lot of the day-to-day tensions in the employment relationship are similar. Where I think there's differences is in the, well, A, in the legal protections that you have, and I think that's really important. I think in the UK we've kind of moved away from thinking about the importance of, of legal protections as, as a general workforce. Obviously, mm. labour lawyers, trade unions think about that a lot, but day-to-day it's not something that your average worker would typically um, think about their, their legal protections, usually only when they have problems. Uh, but it's also, um, there are differences, I think, with the kind of structures that allow worker voice. Mm. And I think... That's where some of my international work becomes really important because when we look comparatively in other countries, I think we're one of the very few countries that would kind of start to imagine a world without those formal structures of worker voice. It it would be quite unusual for even a French trade unionist or a German trade unionist, certainly, certainly a Swedish trade unionist, to be trying to think about 
Um, you know, why, why would we not want, why would the gold standard not be those kind of formal structures of collective bargaining, worker voice, workers' rights, through all the workplace structures and then into the sector and the national protections, and have that as a kind of gold standard that you then want to try and enforce for the McDonald's workers or the delivery yeah. driver riders or whatever it is. And I think in the UK there is a danger. Becky, you're right um, that these McDonald's strikes are an example of people coming together in the ways that they can. Mm. But I think we're also losing something if we then say, and that's enough. And yeah, I don't yeah, think I we're do. saying No, that, no, no. But, but you could. Yeah. And I actually have been in rooms where people have said, Indeed. and that's, we're so desperate for something and for something positive that yep. we've gone, yep, that's yep. fine. We and, can walk and away so now. And so desperate some evidence that something's working and something's different and something's mm. changing. And I think mm. one of the jobs of, um, of an academic or people who are a little bit sort of looking from the outside or looking across the mm. piece is to say, well, you know, let's celebrate those examples of success. They're really important. They're really, uh, they're showing us uh, that it is possible and they're really important. But actually, we do need to sort of have a question about what are we doing that for? Yeah. And not forget that those structures, those formal structures of collective bargaining and worker representation are where the the argy-bargy of that sort of power imbalance get, get sorted out most effectively. Well, that's what I, in, in the article you referred to, Becky, uh, some head show from McDonald's was mm. quoted, uh, and the, the quote was, well, union recognition was never on the ballot paper. How blinkered, exactly. you know, how, how much missing the point can you get <laughs> in terms of failing to under, understand that, that worker voice and therefore the ability to engage and exercise some control over your working mm. conditions is absolutely at the centre of these things. Yeah, and, and this was one of the things that I was saying at our conference as well, is that there have been an awful lot of discussion, I think, within the movement, very rightly about membership. And Gavin Kelly did a big thing about saying, we're not attracting young workers, mm-hmm. and this is when I then like showered everybody with our papers. And this is, and he sort of said something like, along the lines of, we need to be recruiting young people at double the speed of what we are doing right now. And I sort of said, yeah, okay, fine. I'm not against union membership. In fact, I'm very pro-union membership, funnily enough, from that. But you can't divorce the conversation of membership with collective voice. And the two have to kind of go in tandem because you ultimately have to ask yourself the question, what is it for? What is that membership kind of for? And are we sort of in danger of focusing on membership too much without actually looking at what collective voice is? Absolutely. And I I think that's where looking internationally is really, really helpful because there are systems uh, France mm. is always the example, but there are others. We actually have relatively low membership, mm. but you because you have effective structures for channeling well, channeling those positions, channeling channeling those voices into an effective cl- collective bargaining system that can then produce results that apply to everybody, whether or not they're members. That's a different way of doing it. Now, I'm not saying that's the way I'd like to see in the UK. I think there are some really serious <laughs> problems with that as an approach. But it shows you that it's membership and effectiveness at regulating employment are not necessarily the same thing. Interestingly, in Germany, where they've always had quite strong structures, there has been more and more attention to the fact that they're becoming, or they're worried, a lot of the German unions are worried they're becoming further away from their their members mm-hmm. and actually they, they do want to focus more on organising as we would know it in the UK and I think that's an interesting turn 
because it's a recognition that the, it, the structures are, by themselves are also not enough. You, yeah. you do also have to have that membership voice um, and pre- being prepared to take action. And I think that's where the McDonald's strike is interesting, gets some attention for the work that is going on. And they've been extremely effective at doing that. Well, also ex- uh, extremely brave. Right? Yeah. So only 11 people actually went, went out on strike in four yeah. places across yeah. England, England. But my goodness the coverage they got in terms of bang for your buck that that was that was well judged it it reminded me of the walmart strikes actually alex 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 wood from the oxford institute was was citing the walmart campaign in the in the states as being focused on reputational damage yeah yeah and 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 charted if you like a timeline that that showed how eventually the the, Mm -hmm. you know things became the pressure became irresistible and do do you think i mean it's a question do you do you think that kind of unions themselves as institutions have to kind of hold their hands up and say look we've had avenues to pursue in terms of structures and we've not made the most of it thinking particularly of works councils perhaps I think I think we you can do that I mean that is a line and I think uh, that you can pursue and I think union leadership teams have to at different levels have to be have to have that conversation between themselves I think in the broader discussion it probably doesn't it's probably not particularly helpful in deciding what to do next because we have to kind of recognize we are where we are and there were very very serious constraints and limitations on for example works council the way works councils were introduced how that you know the detail of how they they were they were structured in the UK they've been structured in the UK and so I think we do have to kind of recognize well we are where we are we fought the union movement fought a good fight on some of those points so you know what we've got is not necessarily Mm. what the trade union movement wanted um, but we have to use what we've got and sort of accept that you know there's no point beating up sort of past leaders or past politicians or, you know, we have to kind of take where we are as the starting point, I think. And, and if we do spend too much time beating ourselves up for past things that we didn't like, then, well, we're kind of stuck in a debate about the past, which actually is helpful a little bit to thinking about, how, you know, not, not making the same mistakes again. But it actually doesn't get us anywhere further than that. Absolutely, because I mean, what's happening now is is that we're almost on a conveyor belt, yeah. as it were, of time. Yeah. And, and you know, we might want to look backwards and go backwards, but if we're facing backwards, we're not going to see what's coming down the track. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of feel like we'll always make mistakes, and yeah. it's well, to quite, human. Yeah, it, well, yeah. I mean, I've been told this. I don't know, but it, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit like we will always make mistakes, and the circumstances that we're in changes broadly. Yeah. So the situation we're in now is not the same as those who's first, you know, it's not the same as the toll puddle martyrs and all that kind of stuff, right? So I think you're right. There's an element of which we have to look at the history to to kind of get a sense of grounding us of where we're at because I feel a lot with the precarious work, you know, I've often said this, my family's work history is like precarious work throughout the ages. So kind of talking about precarity, like it's this new thing, I think does a real disservice to the people who have always worked precariously and those unions who have organised them and done a great job of organising them. And I think that that highlights, I wouldn't necessarily see mistakes necessarily. That's not to say nobody's ever made a mistake, (laughs) but sometimes it's just the balance of power at that moment in time. You, you, You can't get Works Council legislation exactly how you would want it. And you know, that's a process of negotiation and compromise and 
all the messy stuff that goes on as laws are made. And, you know, yeah, it's not perfect, but you kind of have to work with what you've ended up with. <laughs> and it's better than having nothing. I mean, you, you've spoken in, in, in recent papers, Mel, about us being in an era of financialization. Mm. I mean, what, what, what particularly do you mean by that? And what, what's the impact of that in terms of the process you've just described? It's a good question, because I think that is really underpinning what I see as the change um, that, that Becky was just talking about. So if we take... So financialization can mean lots of different things to, in lots of different settings. But for us, when we're looking at work... Um, I think one of the most important things is understanding how company decision-making has changed so that financial priorities can't absolutely be up, up, you know, at the mm -hmm. top of the agenda. So, for example, the, the example that my, my colleague at Strathclyde, um, now at Sterling, often uses, it, Paul Thompson, is um, in the past you might have been able to do a, a deal in a local factory, for example, where you increase productivity in exchange for job security, for example. Yeah. And the two parties could commit to that being an ongoing thing because they were both going to be there and you know, it was going to be an ongoing relationship and um, you know, they, both parties could do that deal in honour. If you then introduce a corporate centre that's highly financialised and making decisions purely on the finances, and the, 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 the local factory, for example, may well be able to deliver that increase in productivity, but something changes. They just decide the exchange rates have changed, and so they're disinvesting from Scotland and moving to somewhere else, or they're not in that market for whatever product is being made then actually management can't uphold their side of the bargain <laughs> and that becomes very, very challenging. So local deals that are done become very, very difficult for local managers to uphold because they can always be over overruled by the corporate yeah, centre. But also the margins. If, if you concentrate on, on cost over value, mm. say, the, the margins can be so fine. I once negotiated, a, was trying to negotiate the return of work that had been offshore Indeed. In, in, mm. into the UK. And I lost the argument, but the financials were that it was a quarter of 1% more advantageous to leave the work in India than bring it back. Yeah. And I it, think and that's and a really good, good example. And by financialising the decision-making of companies, you, you inevitably end up in that space where it's never going to be uh, about the quality of the work or it's not going to be about the, the deal we did last year or the deal we did the mm. year before. I think one of the other areas it really shows itself is in um, areas of our sort of f personal finances, households, individual finances, because we've all become financialized. We've all kind of, for right or for wrong, kind of bought into to an idea that we need to personally take some kind of responsibility for our pensions or yeah. for periods of perhaps unemployment or less employment. And, and I think then you start to get... Uh, straight, some very interesting and sometimes very strange trade-offs within families um, where we have uh, sort of many, many families using household debt in the form of mortgage to pay for their children's higher education, for example. It's a completely normal trade-off in 2018. We've only relatively recently invented that as an idea. Um, and what that then does is, of course, transfer all that responsibility to the household mm -hmm. and increases the risk um, of losing your, you know, the, the penalty when you, if you lose your job or if you have to move on to a much more flexible contract or if your son or daughter has to work for a long time after their education to, to find a secure job. Mm. Those kinds of things become much more risky. We've, we've, 
we've transferred that risk away from our employers and the state and more and more onto yeah. us as households. And I think that that causes trade unions some, some problems um, because, you know, how do you then say, okay, you, you know, we have to have the right to strike <laughs> uh, to, in, you know, bargain for whatever it is we want to bargain for um, when people are facing those kinds of challenges to their personal finance, I think that's very, very difficult. No, no surprise, given the environment, the financialisation environment that you've, you've, you've just de- described, that you had the chief executive saying he was singing, we're in the money, Indeed. at the news that his firm wanted to take yeah. over at. Yeah. I, I am rolling my eyes as Simon's well, talking. I mean, just, of, course, of course, if you look at uh, we're in the money, that comes from a 1933 film, The Gold Diggers, which was, uh, which was, which was about speculating and hoping that there would be an end to the recession in the States. And when actually the tough choices that you've just described yeah. about would no longer need to be made. Of course, it's been, you know, bastardised many times since, since, since then. It's, to me, what this kind of, kind of speaks to is that loss of the code determination because there is no vested interest in a management making a deal that will last for longer because they're not sure whether they're going to be there or not. There is that kind of individualization of risk and the glamorization of it all as well. You know, there was a there's an American uh, tech company, uh, Fiverr, who did this ad, uh, ad, and it was a woman who looks absolutely knackered. And it was like, we're here for the doers, not that, you know, and it's like, you know, you eat coffee for breakfast, we're here for you, you know, and it's like that American dream on steroids and we're we're kind of sold it. And then I think from a union point of view, where is the role, where is collective voice in that? and trying to explain what collective voice is in an ever individualised world. And then we go around and blame everybody for thinking individually and kind of do this whole like, oh, millennials only think about themselves. And it's like, well, yeah, but isn't that because actually they're in that circumstance where if they don't, who will? And they don't get a sense of I think necessarily there is a safety net. Where the them. trade union movement, because I think there are glimmers of, of real leadership from the trade union movement. And I think one area of the trade union movement has been really clear about leading a debate and trying to get a different narrative is around pensions. Mm. And around pensions, you can clearly see unions sort of saying, this isn't about us in the public sector or us in the sort of uh, final salary pension schemes having gold-plated pensions and everyone else having to get away, you know, survive on nothing. This is about saying you can have, why, why can't we have good pensions for everybody? Yeah. And I think changing that narrative, I don't think the trade union movement has universally changed that narrative. But I think it's, I think a lot of unions have been very vocal in saying, you know, we're going out on strike to defend our pensions. We're not doing that to disadvantage workers in the, in the private sector who maybe don't have access to that. We're doing that because this is really important to us, and we'd love everyone else to have pensions that are, you know, that, that have sensible employer contributions and, mm. and what have you. And I think that's quite, quite clever and quite important, and it does help make this about what the man has done, if you like, what financialisation has done, what uh, particular decisions in corporate world have done to us collectively as, as workers. And I think that's an important change of debate and emphasis. Well, that's a really useful bridge that you've built and have started to cross because, of course, li- li- listeners, uh, Mel is not only 
Professor of Work and Employment uh, at the University of Glasgow, as I say, very kindly supporting the production of this podcast. Um, but you are also very involved in your union, the University and Colleges Union, and, and have had a, a fairly interesting past few weeks. Yes. Um, so, so what has been your role in the now just about concluded? Well, currently industrial action is suspended at the moment um, and there's been an agreement about the the next stage of the negotiations. The the ballot still remains live and I think it's very important for a lot of our members that we keep remembering that because it's not at all clear that this next stage of negotiations will result in what what we actually want. Um, It's been a a fascinating uh, winter, a cold winter outside on the picket line. We've had 14 days of strike action across about four or five weeks, um, culminating in a whole week uh, about three or four weeks ago. And it's been remarkable. It's it's just been one of the most extraordinary experiences in my trade union life. You know, my union has gone on strike many times about pensions, <laughs> and typically the the pickets like you know pickets are short term. They're often two hours or a day, or possibly two or three days of strike action. The picket lines have maybe ten of the usual stalwarts on them, yeah. and right from the beginning of this strike, it was clear that there was something else going on, and it's really captured people's imaginations. And people are very, very, very angry. And I think it's partly about pensions, but mm. it's partly about lots of other issues. It's about the casualisation of university staff. It's about the marketization of that relationship between students and staff. Um, it's about lots and lots of things, and it's kind of come to a head um, around this issue of pensions, um, where our employers were essentially trying to change us from to a, to a uh, much less advantageous scheme. And it's, it's captured people's uh, hearts and minds, I think. And what we do with that next is a big challenge. We've got, had a big increase in membership. We've had a big increase in activism, so people wanting to understand how the union works. And sort of using that and focusing it on useful uh, other activities to challenge, for example, casualisation, and uh, it's going to be a big job. Is there... A risk that if people uh, come to the union in times of, of, of upheaval and upset and, uh, and anger, actually their well, their expectations sometimes can be a bit out from what realistically can be achieved. I, th- I think so, and 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 and, uh, and that's in no way to blame to blame them. Um, I think they're one of the things that a lot of industrial relations scholars have been doing in the sort of public debate um, it has been to sort of explain some of that nerdy detail of how trade unions work how do you get uh, motions passed that then inform the bargaining positions of our leaders Mm. and our general secretary and people like that Um, how does that relationship between members and branches and the general secretary and the negotiating team work so you know I think there's a there's a lot of unions do things as we know in very particular ways and people kind of have to experience that to some extent and and so I think there's a lot of learning my union has Mm. to do in the next quick quickly in the next months um, to to, to make sure that that anger doesn't become anger that's focused at the union. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's mm-hmm. always a risk when, when strike action happens. And to make sure it is targeted at some of those broader issues that we really can do things about I've, if we organise well at workplace level. I sort of like feel 
constantly like I go back to you know being a new organizer and it just always being about the issue it always being about having a win and it always being about channeling people's emotions whatever those emotions are into some form of kind of not structure in a hard sense but in a kind of like activity maybe yeah. I think it's probably a and on one level I'm it. delighted I mean I 20 years ago I was sitting on the then AUT's um you know anti-casualization committee its predecessor trying to get conference to take these ma- these issues seriously we were about five people at the time and one officer you know and one day a week of one officer and to it's taken 20 years of really plugging away at this to really get people to, across the board to really understand how much of a problem this is for us. For us, as I speak now as an established member of staff who's, who's not on a, a fixed term contract, um, but it affects us in, the, in our sort of more established positions. It affects our students. It affects, you know, by definition, their therefore kids and nieces and nephews going to university and, all, mm-hmm. and, and to sort of put together that big picture. And on one level, it's quite exciting I think there's quite a lot of work to do. Not <laughs> <laughs> always the way. Yeah. I mean, I w- what I would suggest if you know anybody has a spare couple of hours is to go through those um, Twitter feeds of the industrial relations uh, academics during that time. I mean, I was just like nerding out massively on Mel's feed because it was like a real time lecture about like, well, this is what this means and this is how this kind of works, and and it was. I, I just sort of thought. You know what, if you've never taken strike action before, organised strike action, or even just been part of the industrial side of a union, you're going to learn loads about all of these sorts of things. And what I find really interesting is, notionally, higher education, like further education, still has some form of national bargaining. It does. Yet you have a lots of diff, lots of these different employers that it sort of requires that t- a two tier approach, doesn't it? Where you have you, you can't just li- leave it to the national pay bargaining and kind of have done that. There's a lot of work that has to be done in the local side, and I sort of feel like it sort of shows how sometimes national pay bargaining isn't the be all and end all. You can't just rely on the structure in yeah. order to get so, sort of stuff done, and also that when people talk about precarity they tend to think about the mcdonald's workers and it's not it's throughout the whole of the kind of work stratification and the the risk is is if you make it seem glamorous to one side and you sell it to them and it works for them to some extent because they're higher paid or whatever there's that mindset of them when it works for me so why wouldn't it work for everybody else like yeah but you can charge a thousand pounds a day for your services I don't think a McDonald's worker can do and a lot of our staff are paid a lot a lot less than that and particularly yeah no it, I'm not it just to... should say I do not think that a casualist hourly paid lecturing because I have been one I know for a fact that's not what I could command but yeah. one of the strokes of genius and I was it wasn't at all clear to me at the time that it, it was as clever as it turned out to be was to ballot workplace by workplace employer by employer because what that did was it acted as a structural test to see which branches were 
up for the the action and some of the branches didn't win their ballot yeah. um so the, the university of birmingham where, where one of my colleagues is based didn't win the ballot but what it meant was in the in the branches that had won there was a real momentum and they'd organize for the ballot and i think that was very very clever move. Well, that's right having having that local activity as an organizing tool is an important important yeah. part of the structure which you said some years ago you wrote, wrote a, a very well regarded rightly well regarded paper about uh, lamenting that there was no debate about the politics of organising in trade, trade unions. Would you say that's kind of that's been remedied now? I don't think it's been remedied in the sense that I don't think it's been concluded because I don't think it it's ever going to be concluded. I don't think there is a single um, position on it. You know, I don't think there's some sort of right view, correct view about about what we're organising for. But I think I think there is a lot more evidence that that. People are asking that question, and I, I say people, I mean, certainly you see that, for example, at the activist base of UCU that's been mobilised in, mm. in, this, in this dispute. But I think you also see it at very senior levels, um, and certainly some of the discussions that we're going to be having around the TUC's 150th. I think there's quite a lot of evidence that the underpinning some of the things that people have been asked to talk about there is, you know, what are we, what are we organising for? Um, one of the things that I think it is time to go back to and perhaps hasn't been uh, emphasized enough in some of the more recent debates in organizing is how we can use politics in the sense of party politics in the sense of laws to support some of the things we're doing and i think there's interesting scope there to to open up discussions about that <laughs> well that's a that's a, a good good Jumping off point, if you, if you like, but before we go, well, um, um, what's what's next in terms of your your academic research? Uh, so I've, we're finishing um, a project on uh, young workers and unions. That's that's in uh, five different countries. So that's been fascinating. We've got a lot more to write about that. So the the, the brochure, the, the booklet that we did for Unions Twenty One, was a brief introduction to some of the findings. But we've got a lot of material there. I'm also really interested in employers as well. So I research yes. unions a lot, but I'm also really interested in employers. And one of the questions that I've really been asking myself is, how do employers make decisions about some of these things? I'm fascinated. Badly. But why? So I was like, right, I've got the uh, paper <laughs> in. <laughs> and so one of, one of my routes into that has been thinking about apprenticeships and thinking, mm. how does an employer decide whether or not they want to take on an apprentice? Sometimes it's because unions are sort of encouraging them to, but usually it's not. And so thinking about, well, how does that work? And how does an employer decide to pay the living wage or not? Things like that. And yes, sometimes that's campaigning around the issue, but sometimes it's not. So those kinds of questions. And I think the more we understand employers, the more we understand how we get into some of the situations that we get ourselves into and I think it does also really help uh, give a, a counterpoint to some of the our thinking in the trade union movement about why is our employer behaving in this way yeah and you know financialization is part of that but also just day-to-day -day HR pressures or operations pressures or the market or whatever it is and I'm really interested in that so yeah. I want to look more, much more at that. Extremely important work because we just don't know do we? And, and as someone once said knowledge is power. <laughs> knowledge <laughs> is power. Mel thank you very much uh, for, for spending time with us. Do, 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 do stay with us uh, as, as, as Becky and I just run through a few things that I'm sure listeners you would want us to share 
with you. Top of my list uh, would, would be what the PDA, the Pharmacist Defence Association Union, is doing at the moment. They're ballot uh, to have the PBA, which is like the Boots in-house Union of Pharmacists, uh, kicks off on the 10th, 10th, 10th May, uh, an unprecedented position for a yeah. union to be in, to have to have a ballot with a 40% minimum threshold to get the PBA de-recognised yeah. in order that they can vacate the kind of parking places it were to enable the PDA to be the rightly recognised union for pharmacists. And the first of that to go to the CAC and to go through the CAC as well. And I have to say, not just because they're a Unions 21 supporter, but I genuinely do think that we're not making enough of this particular decision across the movement and we're not recognising it for the not just the hard, sheer hard work and dedication that has gone on to kind of do this, but actually strategically it is such an important thing for, for unions. And, you know, increasingly where you see organisations like the Boots Pharmacists Association, who are nominally independent, I'm using air quotes as Well, is. I don't think they're even nominally independent. Well, well, well they're, okay, they're registered okay. with a certification but office. But they're not, though. That's the crazy no, they thing. Were, the I certification thought. officer declined to issue a certificate of independence um, well, I, I and yet gonna... still left them blocking the PDA. I did see their returns on the site. So, not that I spend evenings of a weekend looking through the certification office. I just know people who do. Uh, Why are you looking at me when you say that? <laughs> no, it is very much me that does it. But no, you know, like it's, I think when we're talking about employer, employee voice, and I suppose I always think of, well, how would I counteract that? Phrase? I was an employer, how would I think about this? Uh, I can very easily plumb the depths of a Machiavellian kind of system and we need to think about how we respond to those sort of fake employee voices and how we how how would we do the sort of things that the PDAU are doing so I think hats off to them and of course the other side of that coin is a very real debate that if the government is inclined which it may be who knows to go down the route that Matthew Turner proposed in his report about strengthening collective Mm. voice through works council type representation Albeit recognise, you know, we would recognise as a risk there of, of actually setting up representative structures, actually where the distance between the structure and those who are nominally represented is, is too great. Don't represent yeah. it, anyone. How how do we make sure that that bogus representation, the false voices, if you like, are not yeah. the ones that ones that are heard? In, interesting. Uh, other things just to talk about from the from the new news at the moment. Uh, Asdor. Um, Having a bit of a ding-dong with Little, Little have said, this is a really countercultural thing, Little have said, oh, we're not going to recognise unions. Well, actually, Little, I mean, you know, you might have a choice while it's below the threshold, but if you carry on with that attitude, I kind of think you're going to have a CAC ruling against you sooner rather than later. Uh, not that Little will listen to what I say, I'm sure, but all power to the above of us And also, campaign. speaking of Usdor, they've just welcomed the National Association of Co-op uh, I can't remember what the O stands for. Operatives, I think Operatives, it is. Operatives, yeah, that's good news. Into their memberships that they're going. In. I, I did love the press release because it was that very union press release, you know, because it was like, and they will be going into the Sato section. And I was like, any explanation of what the Sato section is? No, we just okay. Su- isn't it supervisory and technical officers? Yeah, it's Simon like Wilkinson would is know it that. Like that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah to undermine the broader joke that I was making. Thanks, Simon. <laughs> that's great. Thanks. Sorry, baby. <laughs> What have we got coming up? What have we got coming up? Yes, I mean, we're, I mean, we're still in post-conference recovery mode. We now start our work for the next eighteen months, and 
to kind of to give a broad outline, we're going to be focusing on three main things over the course of the next 18 months. The first one is on collective voice and collective bargaining and how we kind of bring that to the fore in some of the debates around uh, trade union, uh, the, the, the future of the trade union movement and also just the whole idea of what work is all about and why we do it and how it all goes. We're going to continue to do some stuff on Brexit because it's still that's still going on. Great. Cheers, everyone. And lastly, we're going to do some stuff around activism and actually what does work in terms of... So it kind of speaks to all the stuff that the UC, the UC have found themselves in. Right, it's going to be a full programme of work and you can catch all the details on our website, www.unions21.org.uk. If you haven't read it yet, please, please, please download the Roadmap to Recovery document because that's our starting point in terms of the practical initiatives that we think would really meet the challenge, so many of the challenges of trade unions uh, that the trade unions are facing at the moment. And that's probably about it for the, for this week. As yes. ever, it has been a pleasure having your company. We hope you like what you've heard. We hope that if you have, you will tell your friends, you'll rate us highly on iTunes, you'll rate us highly on Podbean, you'll share us on social media. We need all the support we can get, get truly to maintain this quality product coming to you on a fortnightly <laughs> basis. What am I selling here? You're <laughs> selling us, that's legitimate. Uh, that's legitimate. Thank, yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you very much. If you'd like to join the debate, if you've heard something that you want to tell us your views on, if you think there are things that we need to cover in future podcasts, if you've got a particular query that, that, that Mel's research has prompted in your mind, please do email us at info at unions21.org.uk. In the meantime, uh, this is uh, me, Simon Sapper. And me, Becky Wright. And me, Melanie Sims. Saying thanks to the University of Glasgow for their support in this podcast. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye. podcast was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. It was a Makes You Think production supported by the University of Glasgow.